If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter. We're going to leave Moses and the people of Moab behind on the plains of Moab as they wait to enter the promised land. And we're going to join Jesus in the next few weeks on the road to Jerusalem as he makes his way there uh, for the very last time. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. And we'll be beginning in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead, and they went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples saw James, and, and when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, "Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them?" But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We ask now that you would uh, bless the reading and hearing of your word, Spirit of God. I pray that you would make our hearts attentive to your word and to the truth of it. Hold our attention on Jesus, and may we see him, and may we be transformed by who we see him to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Look with me, if you will, again at verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The New American Standard reads, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The English Standard Version reads, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The King James Version, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke is the only gospel writer that catches this moment in time for us. Luke is the physician, the one trained in observation. Luke is the one who's called on to make a diagnosis. Luke wrote this gospel to Theophilus, and he he wrote of himself, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And so what was the result of that investigation? Somehow in his interviews with the disciples... Somehow, as he listened to them tell their stories about Jesus, they hit up on this moment in time, and Luke pursued it. The time that this look came across Jesus' face, a distinct expression, something noteworthy, something memorable. What must that look on Jesus' face have have looked like? You know, when you and I are observant, we can read other people's faces. Even children can do that. Children are particularly attentive to the face of their parents when they want something. They read the face before they make the request because great risk is involved. If they ask at the wrong moment, they may not get what they want. So they sit across the table and they watch for openness, evaluating inside their own mind, hmm, dad looks pretty happy right now. I was a 
pretty bright. Let's see those lines on his forehead. Mm, they're not very creased. He must not be very stressed. <gasps> he just winked at mom. Now's my moment. And they make their request. Parents read children. Little Adam, I mean little Johnny. Little Johnny. Without saying a word, you know that little Johnny has broken your soapstone sculpture from Africa because he was throwing a ball in the living room that he wasn't supposed to be throwing in the first place. But the guilt is written all over his face, what he has done. Spouses can read each other's face. One look. You know where there's a calm sea or a storm brewing. It's all there on the face, isn't it? All of it. Openness, guilt, pain, trouble. We can all see it. We don't know what expressions came together to create that look on Jesus' face, but there must have been a range of competing emotions. Love, definitely. Greater love hath no man than this, Jesus said, than to lay down his life for his friends. And so much does Jesus love people that he will not be kept away from Jerusalem, even though the Sanhedrin, the religious council there, centered in Jerusalem, has condemned him to death. Even though Jesus has himself recently predicted his own death two times. Look back up in verse 22. Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now look in verse 44. About a week later, Jesus says, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Whereas the ESV says, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Jesus knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem, and yet he set his face to go there. You know, the the hills of Galilee would have provided a, a perfect place for Jesus to escape, for him to hide. Israel certainly provided enough desert places where Jesus would be safe and secure. Jesus knew of those places. Luke tells us in chapter 4 that he, he went away to a solitary place. We know he took the disciples there. They were so busy they didn't even have time to eat. And Jesus said, come on, go with me to this secluded, solitary, deserted place. And they went with Jesus. It would have taken a long arm to reach from Jerusalem to the places where Jesus could have hidden himself if he loved his own life more than he loved ours. If he had chosen to keep his life instead of losing it for us. Because Jesus loves so deeply, he was determined to go to the place where he would die so violently. So somehow, love found its place on the expression of Jesus' resolute face. But love could not have been the only emotion expressed. It had to be more than that. About 20 years ago, Sears had a commercial. I wonder if some of you remember it. And they had this phrase, and they, went, they used this phrase to draw people into their stores. It was on all their printed material, and it was in the little jingle that they wrote. Come see the softer side of Sears. Remember that? Come see the softer side of Sears. See, I suppose that the Sears executives decided that Sears was known too much for their rugged, durable, hardy craftsman tools and their lawnmowers and their equipment and their assortment of appliances. And so apparently they wanted people to think more than about just nuts and bolts when they thought about Sears. And so they tried to present their softer side. Women could shop 
at Sears and find beautiful clothes and delicate lingerie and fluffy towels and soft linens. Sears wanted to make sure that we knew that they were not just one-dimensional. They had a softer side. And so too with Jesus. Only in the opposite way. We so often think of Jesus as soft. I draw your attention to the painting behind me. (laughs) Flowing robes, soft eyes, delicate, gentle hands. I dare say that that is not what the disciples saw when they set out with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. His determination had a special look. Determination and resolution. They're only necessary when there is some sort of obstacle or some sort of opposition or opposing force that has to be overcome when something difficult or challenging has to be faced and conquered. In his humanity, Jesus had to face and overcome and defeat the obstacle and the opposition of his own very real fear, dread, anxiety, of going to the cross. If Jesus had to resolve to go to Jerusalem, as we have read this morning, if he had to set his face to go there, it must be because something within him would have held him back. If not, why would he have to to set his face? Was Jesus really in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, or was he not? Did Jesus offer a sincere prayer when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me? Or was there really nothing painful in that cup at all? Scripture says he endured the cross. If there was not reluctance, what was there to endure? Scripture says he despised the shame of the cross. If there was not something from which he shrank, what was there to despise? John Calvin writes this, For if no dread, no difficulty, no struggle, no anxiety had been present in his mind, What need was there that he should set his face resolutely? But as he was neither devoid of feeling nor under the influence of foolish boldness, he must have been affected by the cruel and bitter death, or rather the shocking and dreadful agony which he knew would overtake him from the rigorous judgment of God. And so far is this from obscuring or diminishing his glory that it is remarkable proof of his unbounded love for us. For laying aside a regard to himself that he might devote himself to our salvation. Through the midst of terrors he hastened to death, the time of which he knew to be at hand. When the disciples saw Jesus, they saw heroic bravery. Encourage. That's what was required for Jesus to put one foot in front of the other on that road toward Jerusalem. Whenever the thought of the cross entered his mind, and not just the physical torture of the cross, but the emotional torture of the cross, as he felt abandoned by his Father, when Jesus thought of those things, he did not stop in his tracks. He didn't turn around and say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Instead, Jesus walked on and on and on and on, every step, a hero's step, overcoming personal fear, every step, a step of triumph over the reluctance of his flesh. 
toward the suffering that lay ahead. In Jesus is true grit. You know, we're always looking elsewhere for heroes. And I'm on a World War II kick right now, obsession you might call it. I go to Netflix, I watch the documentaries about it, I see the live footage that they have there. I've finished the Band of Brothers. Now I'm working through the, the series Pacific. Last week I was eager to go to the USS Yorktown and, and listen to three, three of the few remaining soldiers from Iwo Jima, but because I don't have true grit, a little backache, keep me at home, wah, wah. We want to hear the stories of heroes because they are inspirational to us. And preachers, you know what? We are notorious for scanning sources, looking everywhere for a story to tell you about some hero and their bravery, to make you cry at the sacrifice they made. Really? Why would we do that? (laughs) Why do we need to look further than Jesus? Where can we find a truer hero? Where can we find a greater example of courage and bravery? And I don't belittle the bravery of heroes or the sacrifices they made. But, but here's the reality. that The 12-year-old boy running playfully through the streets of New York City or through the cornfields of the South in 1932 had no clue that in 1942 they would be running through the battlefield. They were oblivious to that fact, that they would be called on to make the supreme sacrifice. The moment was thrust upon them in a moment. And death was for them just a possibility. And I guess in some battles, a a probability, but it was never a certainty. But for Jesus, listen, his entire lifetime, lived in the shadow of the cross. And so his heroism wasn't just in an unexpected moment. And it wasn't required from him or of him for just a week or a month or a few years. It was required for a lifetime. Turn in the Old Testament, back up to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50. It says there in Isaiah 50, verse 5, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. The beating, the mocking, the death on the cross did not come as a surprise to Jesus. From eternity past, it was the plan of God foretold in intimate detail by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before it ever came to pass. To carry out this plan, that's why Jesus came. Everything he did in life always had the shadow of the cross over it, so every step of Jesus is a hero's step. Every breath he takes, the breath of a hero, every morning that he makes himself rise from his bed is a hero's rising. And he uses his great courage and his bravery to be unflinchingly, Obedient to his father. Philippians chapter 2, 
tells us that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so every step on this road to Jerusalem, a fresh act of submission and obedience. That's inherent. Again, the meaning of resolute, the possibility of disobedience must be overcome. And and so it was with Jesus. And that's why the bravery of the bravest hero to whom we can point pales in comparison to the bravery of Jesus, our Savior. Love and resolute obedience, that's Jesus. Walking along the road to Jerusalem with no one, no one to cheer him on. You know, at least in our battles, we fight with friends beside us. They're there to support us. They're there to encourage us. They're there to say, keep going. They're there to pick us up when we fall. They're there to carry us off the field when we can't walk for ourselves. We share a common goal and we support one another in achieving that goal. But Jesus had no such support. No one shared this goal with him. At the beginning of his ministry, there was Satan with him in the desert, trying to get him to get up, give up this goal that he had, to change his plan, to not go through with it. At the end of his ministry, there are the disciples to take the place of Satan, to try to dissuade him, no, don't go. When Jesus first tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, you remember the story, Peter takes him aside. And he says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. (laughs) What kind of support is that? In verse 44, Jesus says he's going to die. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. But the disciples did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. No one understood. No one encouraged. No one supported Jesus On his journey, on every side, there were people trying to dissuade him from his purpose. So great love and great courage must have been mixed in Jesus' face as he set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am meek and gentle and lowly of heart. The Lamb of God is also, as Scripture says, the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. The Lion and the Lamb. Dr. Alexander McLaren, another quote, he writes this. The type of manhood and the type of womanhood are both and equally in Jesus Christ. And he is the man, whole, entire, perfect, with all power, breathed forth in all gentleness. With all gentleness, made made steadfast and mighty by his strength, kingly might and lowly meekness, power in love and love in power. The supremest act of resolved consecration, of heroic self-immolation that was ever done upon earth, an act which we degrade by paralleling it with any other was done at the bidding of love that pitied us. As we look up at that cross, we know not whether is more wonderfully set forth the pitying love of Christ's most tender heart or the majestic energy 
of Christ's resolved will, the blended rays pour out and reach to each of us. You know, throughout his ministry, Jesus was always shunning the spotlight, always slipping away in the crowd, escaping to the mountains from those who would take him and make him king by force, speaking in veiled terms, ordering people not to tell anyone of the glory they had seen or the miracle that they had experienced. But now a change takes place. Jesus heads for Jerusalem. and He's going to make this triumphal entry among a mass of people who are cheering him as if to say to his enemies, here I am, come and get me. Then what does he do? He goes to the temple and he makes a big scene there. He, he drives out the buyers and the sellers and he flips over the table of the money changers, intentionally putting a bullseye on himself through his actions so that his enemies cannot miss. All this is captured for us in one scene from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Judas has just procured a band of soldiers and some officers given to him from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And he led this group to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knew Jesus and the disciples had gone. And this group carried with them lanterns and torches, and they were armed with weapons. So Jesus, knowing all this was happening, offered himself. He came forward to meet them. Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus didn't run in fear. Or deny his identity in shame. Instead he said, I am he. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I am. Where have we heard that before? Oh yeah, that's right. That's what Jesus calls himself when he speaks to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. The great I am. And at his name, Just a a flash of the lightning power within him comes out and the soldiers fall to the ground in impotent terror. I love it. Just a hint of the power that could have saved him and obliterated the mighty armor-clad Roman weaklings who had come to arrest him. But Jesus... Because he is a man of incredible bravery and courage, because he will not shrink from the cross, he helps the soldiers out and he gives them a second chance. Who did you who do you seek? He asks them a second time. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And then John writes, This was to fulfill the word that was spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. So Jesus moved from great power, great power, to self-surrender for our sakes. He allows himself to be arrested so that we might go free. He allows the hands to seize him that he could have so easily and effortlessly shaken off. This 
is our resolute Jesus. And if he was once this resolute, unswerving in his desire to go to the cross, for who we would consider to be the very best of the best, the disciples, even they would desert him and abandon him. If he was resolute and unswerving in his determination to go to the cross for the worst, those who thorn-crowned him and scourged him and nailed him and hung him and spit on him and cursed him and shouted crucify him. And for all those in between, what then is he determined to do for you and for me? In light of this resolve of the Lord, how, how can your heart, how can mine, how can we ever doubt his love toward us, his intentions for us? How can those doubts persist? Look at his face. His resolve is undeniably etched on it. He is determined. He will give his life for his people, people like us. He will not be prevented from giving his life for people, people like us. And so he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And you know, every step of the Lord left a footprint for you and for me as his followers to consider. Where is my resolve? And to what do I resolve myself? Lord, what do you want me to do with this life that you so resolutely gave your life that I might have? Where are your steps of victory? The triumph over the obstacles. The triumph over the attractions that would keep you from obedience. Where's your decision and your determination to live a life of obedience to Christ? Often those in the Reformed tradition, as we are, they don't like to talk about making decisions. Some seem to think that if we make a decision, or that if we proclaim a resolution, that somehow we rob God of His sovereignty or we diminish the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly calls us to himself. No doubt about it. Good news, right? And God sovereignly frees our wills when he saves us. God frees our wills when he saves us so that we can decide with the new mind that he gives us, with the new heart, with the new spirit, we can set our faces toward following him. It's not presumptuous presumptuous of us to decide or to proclaim our decision, I will follow Jesus. Instead, that bold proclamation acknowledges that the strength and the power is ours to draw upon when we decide to follow in the footsteps of Christ. 1 Corinthians 16.13 combines for us both the bravery and the love that we see in Jesus, and it calls each of us to this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I want to finish with this. 
in his 2003 book, Why God, Why? Internationally known Indian evangelist, who is a preacher and a missionary to the persecuted church in India and to to communist uh, countries around the world, Dr. P.P. Job, he writes in this book about uh, a Welsh missionary that went to India, an area of Assam in the mid-1800s, the northeast area of India. And he shared the gospel with a man there who had been a headhunter. And this man came to faith in Christ, and, and so did his wife, and so did his two children. Their faith was contagious, and several other people from the village also came to faith in Christ. Well, the village chief was angry about this, and he called the man to publicly renounce his faith. And as the story goes, that man in that moment, moved by the Holy Spirit, on the spot composed and began to sing this now famous song. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided, you know the song, to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Well, enraged at the refusal of this man to deny his faith in Christ, the chief ordered that his two children be killed. And then he said, will you deny your faith now? You've lost both of your children. You will lose your wife too. The man sang in reply, "Though though none come with me, still I will follow. Though none come with me, still I will follow. No turning back. The chief then ordered his wife to be killed. Now he asked for the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. But before they put him to death, he sang the final memorable lines, the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. And it said that the remarkable faith of this man caused the chief to profess faith in Christ. And when the chief professed faith in Christ, so did the entire village. Perhaps that's the way it happened. Perhaps that's why we still have this hymn sung by an Indian tune from this obscure village because this is truly how it happened. A great story of great resolve. But if you and I are waiting for a moment like that to resolutely set our faces to follow and obey Christ, we may never resolutely set our faces to follow Christ. I bet the obedience to which Christ is calling you now is not that dramatic. But to you, it may feel just as difficult. It's a difficult obedience. You dread it. You struggle with the consequences that you perceive will come from your obedience. But still you're called to respond to Christ's love, to Christ's sacrifice, to resolve every day, you and I, to follow. You and I are called to resolve to live in obedience to Him, to resolve to overcome that internal conflict that would cause us every day to turn away from obedience to turn and to run from it, to run from Christ, to run from life and instead to go toward death. By the grace of God and with the love of God and the Spirit of God within us, we can follow, we can obey each step 
a hero's step. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray now that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are. You you are so much. There's so much contained in your glory and your greatness. Father, we thank you that the word that you have preserved for us in its pages, we can read of you, Lord Jesus, and your resolve to die for us. That you wouldn't be deterred from that plan by friend or by foe. You were determined to go to Jerusalem, to go to the cross and to die for us. And Lord, for that we give you praise and thanks. Father, I pray that if there are those in the room this morning who have never seen or understood the glory of Christ, the love of Christ, the determination of Christ to make people his own, that you would open their eyes to see it right now, O Spirit of God, and that they would turn in faith to this one who loves them so much. And Lord, for those of us in whose heart you've already worked, sovereignly called us by your Spirit to follow you, I pray that that's what we would do. Follow you. Follow in your footsteps. Follow in your resoluteness, in your unswerving commitment to follow, to obey, to overcome the temptation and the pull of your own flesh to turn back and run. Instead, to set your face toward the goal of Jerusalem, toward the glory on the other side of the cross. Lord, I pray that you would make us that kind of committed, resolved, resolute people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.